What's the connection between Jimmy Wales, Amal Clooney, Emmanuel Macron, Jacinda Ardern and Will I Am? Answer, they were all young global leaders. The forum of young global leaders, dynamic community of exceptional people. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, we're taking a look at the young global leaders, speaking to the person here at the World Economic Forum who leads the YGL program. And when we say exceptional people, we mean that they have the vision, they have the courage, they have the influence to drive positive change. We'll hear from some of those young global leaders from the world of business and investment in Africa. What has drawn me to that community is to find people that are motivated every day to wake up and to create a better society and to influence it positively and to be a driver of change. To politics and tech policy in the Middle East. Being able to access a person that is a leader in this specific field, willing to share with me any insight, allows me to do my job better to a war reporter determined to keep important stories alive. I've been in wars that not many people are covering, and I've covered wars that not many people are covering. And you're applying what you know how to do as a journalist to making sure this thing, this incident, doesn't completely fall off the human radar. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum. And with this look at the young global leaders, Being a young global leader changed my life. This is Radio Davos. Here on Radio Davos every week, we look at the world's biggest challenges and how we might solve them. On this episode, we're taking a look at the World Economic Forum itself, or a part of it at least, a part called the Young Global Leaders. To tell us about that, I am joined by the person who runs that part of the World Economic Forum, Wadia Aithamsa. Wadia, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Very well, thank you. Why do you tell us what is or what are Young Global Leaders? So basically, the Forum of Young Global Leaders is an accelerator for dynamic community of exceptional people. And when we say exceptional people, we mean that they have the vision, they have the courage, they have the influence to drive positive change. Uh, today, we are around 1,200 YGLs. That's how we call them. Uh, in more than 120 national, uh, nationalities or, or countries. And we have YGLs from business sector, uh, educators, activists, entrepreneurs, public figures, you name it. It's basically, they are from all walks of life, from all over the world. And these YGLs are making a difference in their organizations, but also in their communities. So it's not only they do their day job, but they do and they step up to do more for the world. And as a collective, they are united by the belief that today's pressing problems present an opportunity to build a better future across all, all boundaries. And this is aligned with the mission of the forum, the World Economic Forum, to seek to drive public-private cooperation in the global public interest, achieving more together than we could, do, we, we could ever do alone. So give us some idea of the history then. This has existed for quite some time, right? Yes, it's, it's been existing since 2000, uh, 2004, exactly, uh, when Professor Schwab, uh, who is the founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, created the YGL community to help the world meet increasingly complex and interdependent problems. His vision was to create a proactive multi-stakeholder community of world's next generation leaders to inform, influence decision-making and mobilize transformation. Basically, who are the leaders that are in their 30s that are struggling 
to have a name or to have a seat at the table? How can we bring them to, together so that they can learn from each other? Like peer learning is important, but also to have a safe space for them to share their pain points. So through the work of, of the YGL community, uh, Klaus Schwab really envisioned how can we facilitate earnest dialogue, friendship across cultures so that we bridge divides and foster fresh, fresh thinking uh, and, and, and a dynamic way of collaboration to shape more positive, peaceful and prosperous society. So how does it work? Is it something like a yearly thing where there's a, a class of 2022, for example, where you've got a certain number of these young global leaders from very diverse backgrounds in terms of geography, but also in terms of expertise, the fields they're in? Exactly. So as you said, every year we select uh, a class uh, of YGLs of around 100 uh, individuals that are achieving a lot in their in their in their careers with their communities and from different backgrounds and and sectors and nationalities and the idea is how can we bring them together to create a safe space where they can learn they can share their pain points and they can basically become better leaders and by that we are kind of uh, transforming the leadership of sectors of industries of countries to make sure that those are the leaders that we want, that respect all cultures, respect all individuals, that can step up when it's needed uh, to do the work, but also that can, with a simple phone call, call another YGL to solve a problem rather than be stuck in, in, in bureaucracy or in, in protocols. And so these leaders, they're mostly people in their 30s, as that's the young part of the young global leaders. We select them before they turn 40. Oh, okay. That's a shame. I was just checking whether I should apply, but that, that counts me out. <laughs> um, have there been any alumni? Are there any alumni out there that people listening to this might have heard of? Oh, there are, I'm sure, hundreds. Uh, I can give examples of uh, President of France, Emmanuel Macron, Prime Minister of Belgium, uh, Alex de Croo, uh, Will I Am, the musician and uh, I.I. Evangelist, uh, Jack Ma, uh, Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, Filippo Grandi, the High Commissioner of uh, UN Refugees, and so on and so on. Like, we have thousands of incredible individuals that went through this journey of being a YGL, of coming together to work, to harness their relationships so that we can, that they can build a better world. Well, let's hear from three of them. Our colleague Greta Rufino went out and interviewed three young global leaders. Um, I'd like you to introduce each of them in turn, please, Wadia. The first one is Fatumata Ba. Could you tell us something about her? Yes, yeah, so Fatumata is a YGL from class 2018, and she's doing an amazing job as a tech entrepreneur and VC investor. She is the founder and the executive chair of Django Capital, where she helps build and grow and invest a Pan-African tech for good. She champions with proven business models and inclusive social impact all this new industry that is coming to Africa. She is a very passionate about development through technology in Africa, in particular when it comes to women entrepreneurship and empowerment, SMEs growth and formalization, as well as tackling health and education issues through medtech and edtech. An amazing leader, to follow and to listen to. I'm Senegalese. I used to be a technology entrepreneur. I co-founded the first African unicorn, which is now uh, public. And now I run an investment company called Django, 
I'm like very excited to be uh, leading it as one of the very few female-owned private investors in Africa. So what is Django? Django means future or tomorrow in Africa. And the reason why I founded it is because, as you all know, we only create today 3 million jobs per year for our continent, when we need to create at least 30 million jobs. That was one motivation. The second motivation is that because our demography is increasing on the continent, it means that we need to find in a very short span of time innovative way to provide access to healthcare, to education, uh, to financial services to as many Africans as possible. And the third reason is that we have, you know, as you know, uh, tens of millions of SMEs on the continent, and they are uh, between 20 and 40% of the GDP. They create up to 90% of the jobs. But today they struggle to be able to be funded or to have access to market or to have access to logistics. And today, actually, Africa is only attracting 2% of the global funding available overall, FDI, foreign direct investments. And it is the same for startups that need venture capital. And Africa is also attracted less than 2% of VC funding. So I decided to use the power of my network and my track record and to leverage technology and capital to be able to support entrepreneurs in Africa that are using technology for good uh, to solve a problem, whether it is creating jobs, helping people have a better access to healthcare, education. And that has been a super exciting journey so far. What do you look for in companies that you invest in? To me, I only invest in startups that uh, have a double bottom line or a triple bottom line. And we are extremely mission driven. And basically, we only invest in companies that are actually helping achieve SDGs. We always, for instance, look at what is the impact in terms of job creation for women, for young people, and also for green jobs, right? Because we need to accelerate the climate transition, as you know, and to fund the climate transition. The Silicon Valley is very well known. I have a, a lot of admiration for the innovation that they drive. However, in that case, it's not bridging inequalities. It's actually creating sometimes more inequalities, right? When you go to San Francisco, you saw so many people, for instance, that could not afford the housing that are living in the streets. In Africa, we have the obligation to find a meaningful way to connect technology with the real economy, to create jobs, to fight inclusion issues. And that is why it's really the core of what we do. And I'm extremely excited and proud because over the past four years, we've invested or built 11 companies. They are 56% female-led and they are returning uh, an excellent performance financially, socially and environmentally. And it shows that it's possible. And when there is a will, there is really a way. Among these 11 startups that you've been supporting, is there anyone in particular that stands out? Absolutely. So lots of them stand out, for instance, the African Digital Supplies Platform. Um, it's a platform that we actually backed during the pandemic. And the reason why is we've heard that the African Union and the Africa Center of Disease Control uh, were struggling to get access to essential medical supplies. At that time, it was mainly test kits. Now it's evolved into other categories such as vaccines. So in less than six weeks, we put together a team and we put some funding. We partnered with key stakeholders in our ecosystem. And what we managed to do two years later is to have uh, all 55 member states of the African Union be given access to medical supplies from test kits originally to now drugs, to medical devices such as ventilators and to now vaccines. And it has been so successful that now 11 countries in the Caribbean have also applied and are successfully getting um, uh, their medical deliveries through that platform. And I think it's uh, another example of how not only technology, but different stakeholders can be leveraged in a collaborative approach to solve very pressing challenges 
Uh, and that is really why we are here to do what we do. What would you say were the main challenges that you have to overcome in securing partnerships? Well, I think there are many challenges. Uh, some of them are really in relation with operating in an emerging market, right? So I do a lot of interviews or conferences, and you would be surprised to hear sometimes very leading and prestigious uh, news editor asking me very basic questions about Africa, right? So there is a over-perception of the risk and an under-perception of the opportunity. So the first thing is always to not to neglect any issue that we have. We do have some critical issues, but also to show the opportunities um, and also the investment opportunities, the partnership opportunities um, that are complementary to maybe the ed uh, you know, mentalities that used to prevail years ago. And I'm part of a generation that really needs and wants to be able to discuss from equal to equal um, and to be able to grow investments and partnerships. This is evolving positively, but it's not evolving fast enough. And the example I was giving earlier is that Africa is only attracting 2% of the global FDIs and only attracting 2% of the global VC. And that is why I thought about, you know, which model exists and how we can bring value to startups, because then money wasn't enough. So I decided to have a really hands-on approach with my team. And basically what we do is we actually invest human capital alongside the financial capital to help execute on the ground and help de-risk the execution, whether it is finding product market fit, whether it is uh, executing hyper growth, whether it is um, executing market expansion or whether it is being able to maximize its, its impacts uh, socially or environmentally. It has been a very great ride. It has been uh, yielding great results because usually overall, two startups out of three globally, whether in developed or emerging markets, usually die before they turn three years old. Um, and then when we look at the model that, what we, that we chose, um, it's the, the attrition is, um, uh, the, the success rate is 46%, right? But now when we look at our own performance, for instance, our first fund, we actually have a 100% success rate. And it's really coming with understanding the landscape and being able to be extremely hands-on on a day-to-day -day basis with our portfolio of entrepreneurs. You're also a young global leader. Has that helped your mission? I think what has drawn me to that community is to find people that are really purposeful and that are motivated every day to wake up and to create a better society and to influence it positively and to be a driver of change. And I think collectively, if we put together our work, we can even achieve more. And that's really the ethos of YGLs as well. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, transformative, inspiring and impactful uh, are the three keywords that will define my YGL journey so far. Fatoumata Bar from Senegal, co-founder of the African e-commerce platform Jumia and head of investment firm Django. Wadia, that was our first young global leader. Who's the next one we're going to hear? Our next one is Omar bin Sultan Al-Ulama. He's a YGL who joined us early this year as part of class 2022. And he was appointed as Minister of State for Artificial Intelligence, Digital Economy and Remote Work of the United Arab Emirates in 2020. He joined the government in 2017 as Minister of State for Artificial Intelligence, where he was responsible for enhancing government performance by investing the latest technologies and tools of artificial intelligence and applying them in various sectors. And as you might see from the title, he's one of the early ministers around the world to be in charge of a tech that is not even yet out there as we hope to artificial intelligence. Let's listen to Omar. 
My name is uh, Omar Sultan Al-Ulama. I'm the Minister of State for Artificial Intelligence, Digital Economy, and Remote Work Applications of the UAE. And you were appointed in 2020 during a challenging time as the world faced the COVID-19 pandemic. I think COVID brought with it a plethora of challenges that governments had to overcome. Uh, some included trying to provide uh, efficient health care for people who needed that health care, while at the same time ensuring that society as a whole is safe and also that the economy is able to recover post the pandemic. That led to many challenges, whether it's in retail or in other sectors as well. Some of the challenges that we need to overcome in the UAE is leveraging technology to ensure that people are able to balance between lives and livelihoods. So with the effective deployment of that, we have seen that the UAE has rated amongst the highest when it comes to safety uh, for people during COVID. And also it had the best results with regards to the openness of the economy and being able to operate as a global hub in the worst pandemic that we've seen over the last 100 years. Another thing as well was uh, looking at simulations of how do we effectively deploy vaccines, how do we effectively create programs, because you know once you put restrictions, it's very hard for you to roll them back and then roll them back up again. But using the right simulation tools, we were able to ensure that we did not need to have certain programs pushed up in terms of restrictions, unless there's a need to, and if we were going to tone down the restrictions, we do it knowing effectively that we will not have to go up in terms of the restriction levels that we had before. And that led to um, a very short lockdown period. It led to uh, you know, the UAE having the highest number of tourists uh, of any country in the world during the pandemic. And it also led to a booming economy. How did you come up with these solutions? So uh, some solutions were really based on understanding the uh, what's happening globally. So we looked at different models of different governments and then look, looked at also what exists in the UAE. So what is the infrastructure that exists? We looked at how the population demographics and dynamics are different to other countries. There is no one size fits all, but understanding what is working and what isn't working and also understanding your society is very important. Let's talk about remote working. We've seen the rise of it during the pandemic. Is it here to stay? I think the future is going to be flexible work. Um, it's not necessarily going to be purely remote or necessarily going to be purely physical. People, uh, I think every single person on earth has different requirements. We have different emergencies. We have different needs. And I think as well, if we look at burnout and other uh, issues that are today uh, common problems that are facing workplaces and talent, there needs to be a way for us to have the, the flexibility to be able to operate in the best cases possible and at the same time to provide for those around us. So if I need to work from home because my family needs me to work from home or if I want to work from a different country for a short period of time, I think that the new trend is that we will be able to have this flexibility. However, it isn't true for all jobs. And going into this new role and looking at this new portfolio that was assigned to me, I thought that it can be purely remote, regardless of what the role of the person is. And, and today I know that this is possible. The other thing is, people are social creatures. The more we interact with each other, the more we talk, the more we get engaged with each other, the more we are able to actually provide valuable inputs to enhance creativity and to enhance as well the ultimate um, output of that engagement. So uh, in my opinion, I think flexible work is the new trend. Um, understanding 
how you're able to give people the flexibility to unleash their best is important. How do you see companies reacting to flexible work? So I think each organization is going to implement it in its own way. However, talent is going to determine what stays and what uh, doesn't. For every organization that wants to become relevant uh, in the coming decades or even the coming year needs to be an incubator of talent. And to do so, uh, this talent is going to say what they accept and what they don't accept. If talent wants to stay at home, which I doubt is the answer, it's not pure uh, work from home or or, remote work, but if talent wants that, organizations will be forced to provide it. If talent wants flexibility, organizations will provide it as well. So I think uh, ultimately it is the, the call of talent to decide. Governments need to put the right regulations to ensure that when people need it, it is an option. Uh, we cannot force companies to work with a pure remote uh, kind of model. But there are certain cases where people should have the flexibility. You're the Minister of Artificial Intelligence. Why does a government need one of those? If we looked at the evolution of governments over the last um, few centuries, we realized that every single time a new technology was invented that had the opportunity to disrupt human life as we know it and disrupt the work of governments, there was a ministerial portfolio created for it. So before the advent of electricity, there wasn't really a minister of energy that governed the production, the distribution, the use of wood fire, right? With telecommunications, there, were, there was a ministerial portfolio that was created with electricity as well, ministers of energy. And we see that across different um, you know, uh, verticals. AI, as we hear it from both technology leaders and government leaders, is a technology that has so much disruption potential, whether it's positive or negative. And we hear that from CEOs of companies and presidents of countries. The question that our leadership asked in the UAE was, how can we effectively deploy AI to benefit from the opportunities, while at the same time putting the safeguards to ensure that we are not disrupted by it and we are not harmed by it? Sometimes, if the view is very short-term, then you get short-term benefits, but you get long-term challenges. And the other thing is, if you only look at AI within a silo, so how do I deploy AI in my entity to get the most output from it, you might harm people in other uh, verticals or in other uh, aspects of society without really effectively knowing that. So we wanted to have a balanced approach where there is one orchestrator in the UAE that ensures that everyone is orchestrating the deployment of AI effectively, and at the same time that we can be the most agile, the most innovative, the most uh, disruption-ready government in the world. And we see that today uh, with regards to how government services are quite advanced in the UAE. We also see that when we look at how the UAE is able to adapt in terms of its agility to disruptions, whether it's a global pandemic or, um, you know, it's an economic crisis, the UAE is always able to pivot, move, benefit and move on. You're also a young global leader. Has being part of that community helps you work and beyond? I might be very good in one specific sector, but maybe do not have the views in another sector. But being able to access a person that is a leader in this specific field and, uh, you know, them being uh, willing to share with me any insight or, you know, just want to help me out because, you know, they want to be a good peer rather than looking for a consultancy contract or looking for something in return uh, allows me to do my job better because, you know, uh, it's the uh, unknowns that uh, get us, right? The things that we are ignorant to. But having this strong unit is one that allows you to even make sense of the 
um, you know, unknowns that, that are around you. Omar bin Sultan Al-Olama, Minister of State for Artificial Intelligence, Digital Economy and Remote Work at the United Arab Emirates. Wadia, who's our third young global leader? Our third YGL is Lara Setrakian. She is an Armenian-American journalist, digital strategist and an entrepreneur. She's the co-founder of News Deeply, a new media company working to advance in coverage of complex global issues. And Lara spent more than five years as a foreign correspondent covering the Middle East for television, radio, and digital platforms for ABC News, Bloomberg, International Herald Tribunes, and Monocle magazines. She since has focused on the fusion of news and technology. My name is Lara Satrakian. I'm a journalist and impact investor. I am an impact partner with Fresco Capital. I also write for Fast Company Magazine and a number of other publications. And I'm best known as the co-founder and CEO of News Deeply. For many years, you worked as a Middle East correspondent covering major events. What would you say was the most challenging moment and how did you deal with it? I do think the most challenging story I've ever covered was the Egypt revolution uh, and the overthrow of Hosni Mubarak, former president of Egypt. And the reason that was more challenging than others is incredible uncertainty. If you go into a war zone, you know what you're dealing with. You generally know the rules of engagement, where the risk levels are, how the population uh, is formed sort of psychographically. But that was the highest degree of uncertainty I had ever covered. And it, you just didn't know sometimes having a camera made you a target. Uh, at one point, authorities were going door to door trying to find journalists in the hotel where I was staying. If you're in my profession, you get very comfortable with risk and uncertainty but you still have to manage it. Looking at the stories that you've covered, is there anyone in particular that stayed with you? So I feel very close to Syria. As a journalist, my job is simply to pay attention, but it's remarkable. When no one's paying attention to your war, it feels horrible. And so the act of a journalist paying attention to your war is an act of grace. It feels like grace. I've experienced that now. I've been in wars that not many people are covering, And I've covered wars that not many people are covering. And the gratitude, the grace, it doesn't mean that you're compromised or you're overly emotional or overly invested. It just means you're paying attention and you're applying what you know how to do as a journalist to making sure this thing, this incident, doesn't completely fall off the human radar. If a war happens and nobody notices it, what is the consequence? What is the empathetic response? And... It's terribly sad when there is none. You are not just a journalist, but also the CEO and executive editor of News Deeply. Can you tell me a little bit about it? News Deeply started in 2012 with an observation that whole countries, whole conflicts do disappear from human attention. And I didn't take that as anyone's fault. It was structural. As news editors, as correspondents, we are actually mandated to jump from one thing to the next. But then if something doesn't rise to the level of our attention in that general buffet that we're offering on our channels or in our newspapers, it will never get seen. And so sometimes something like a war, you'll hear about it once in a while, usually when there's the next biggest catastrophe Now, 100 people died. Now, 1,000 people died. Next time, if 100 people die, you won't hear about it. 
So it always has to be an escalating catastrophe. But in between, you never really hear what's going on. So you don't understand the dynamics of what gets it to that next catastrophe. And as a human species, you're not able to even wrap your head around the deeper dynamics, which frankly are somehow, I want to call them more comforting, but they're easier to grasp. And if you have a more full sense of what's going on in a country or a context, it's empowering. It's not as frightening. You don't just get fatigued by numbers and a sense of doom and catastrophe. You understand more nuance. And News Deeply has been an experiment with a new format. Single subject focus isn't just because it's nice. It's because it was a solution to how we pay attention to things. And for those who want to and need to understand day to day what's going on on an issue, it's necessary. I'd like to ask you about your young global leader's journey. How's being part of that community helped you? Being a young global leader changed my life. It is an immense support. It was a huge boost to my capacity, my confidence, my ability to take risks, my ability to believe in the risks that I'm taking. I am so blessed. I feel so blessed to have been a young global leader and to now be an active member of the YGL alumni. It, and I've seen it not just in my own life. I have seen it in the lives of so many young global leaders and now also global shapers The World Economic Forum has empowered so many of us to do better work at a grander scale with more joy for those of us who are in civil society, for those of us who are journalists, entrepreneurs. It gave us an unprecedented opportunity in our own lives to connect with people who become mentors, friends, supporters, knowledge, to have a feeling of the truly global view of what we're trying to achieve in our own countries. Lara Sitrakian, our third and final young global leader. Wadia, where can listeners to this podcast find out more about the YGLs? They can find out more who are the young global leaders in our website. uh, And of course, in our social media channels, they can see some of the activities that we offer to young global leaders. And of course, they can reach out if they have someone uh, in, in mind that is a great leader so that they can nominate them to join this amazing community of leaders. Wadia Ait Hamza speaking to me about the young global leaders. There are links for more information in the show notes and the transcript blog that accompanies this episode. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join the conversation about this podcast, about any of our other podcasts. Don't forget, we also have Meet the Leader. We have the Book Club podcast. We have Agenda Dialogues. Check all those out wherever you get your podcasts. We can discuss all of those on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with reporting by Greta Ruffino, editing by Jerry Johansson, and studio production by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.